through a hole in the air From those nads to Yenemen Square It's coming from the field But this ain't exactly real Or it's real but it ain't exactly there From the war against disorder From the sirens night and day From the fires of the homeless From the ashes of the gay Democracy is coming to the USA Good afternoon. This is Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99% for March 13th, 2021. And you had just listened to Leonard Cohen, Democracy, uh, a great song uh, and uh, one that is our, we have borrowed as our theme song. You are listening to KFGM 105.5 FM, low power FM uh, for the Missoula Valley and is also Missoula Community Radio, streaming on 1055kfgm.org and now on podcast on anchor.fm or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. And I am Mark Anderlich. And, uh, and with us today is our friend of the show, Sue Kirchmeyer. Hey, Sue. Yeah, hi, Mark. <laughs> so um, we broadcast from the historic Union Hall in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish people. We, rec- we are recording this show from the comfort of our own homes, uh, both of which are located in the ancestral homeland of the Salish people. Uh, Jim this week is off traveling through Alabama, 
and so is unable to help us record this show. Um, we hope you are holding up and doing your part by, by staying at home as best you can and by wearing masks when you do go out into public and by frequent washing of your hands. This show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we have enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall. And we wanna give old Mick a shout out as he is at home too. And we hope friend of the show, Catherine Kanayahu gets better too. So regards to both of you. Um, starting off, this is our word of the week. And that is, uh, what Sue, what's our word of the week? Inflation. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose that doesn't mean what we do to our tires, eh? Mm, yeah, you're right. It is not. Um, it's the kind of inflation of the economic sense. It's when prices rise, which means the value of money falls. Our collective wisdom at Wikipedia says this about inflation. Quote, in economics, inflation is a general rise in the price level in an economy over a period of time. When the general price level rises, each unit of currency buys fewer goods and services. Consequently, inflation reflects a reduction in the purchasing power per unit of money, a loss of real value in the medium of exchange and unit of account within the economy. The opposite of inflation is deflation, which is a sustained decrease in the general price level of goods and services. The common measure of inflation is the inflation rate, the annualized percentage change in, the, in a general price index, usually the consumer price index over time, which hmm. I'm just going to say, I like my definition better, simpler, <laughs> which is a general rise, or it, which is uh, when prices rise uh, and the value of money falls. That's basically inflation. Oh, okay. And what's the reason for us honoring this particular word this week? Well, there are some people who claim that the recently passed American Rescue Plan Act, the ARP, or commonly known as a COVID stimulus package this past week in Congress, will trigger a round of terrible inflation. People like economist Lawrence Summers and some federal budget deficit hawks. So what do they see? Well, they believe that the $1.9 trillion economic stimulus package, which that's a big number, uh, could be putting too much money into the economy, especially when added to the trillions pumped into the economy by Congress over the past year. They believe that inflation is caused by too much money chasing, uh, chasing to buy too few goods and services. And that is true to a point. What they leave out is that the kind of inflation usually, that kind of inflation usually happens when the economy is at or near full employment. In other words, when the economy has little to no slack in it, unemployment is an excellent indicator of how many cylinders the economy is running on. Hmm. Well, we've covered in the past how the unemployment figures uh, that the mainstream media talks about drastically undercuts or undercounts rather, I'm sorry, the unemployment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's very pertinent to our discussion on inflation. Um, one figure that we uh, covered was that over half of all working age Americans do not have a full-time job that pays a living wage. 
I'll repeat that again because it is such an, an important thing to know. Over half of all working age Americans and working age Americans make up about 270 million people or 207 million people, something like that. Um, half of those folks do not have a full-time job that pays a living wage. That is a huge number and speaks to a structural unemployment that is far larger than the official 6% figure given recently. There are tens of millions of people unable to fully pay their living expenses now in this country. The demand for basic and essential services is high and many do not have the means to pay. Therefore, the risk of the ARP triggering inflation is extremely small. And we will go get into in a few minutes, uh, the Democrats have rightly targeted the lower income half of the population to deliver money to. All of the $1.9 trillion will be absorbed into the economy without inflation. Hmm. And the Federal Reserve Bank, it's tried to increase inflation slightly since the financial crash of uh, 2008 and nine. Exactly right. Um, so the Federal Reserve Bank has a target of 2% inflation and has not been able to even meet that modest target for the last six years or so. When they're trying to create inflation, they can't make it. So Fed Chairman Jerome Powell and others have said there is little reason to fear inflation. Well, what if we did listen to Lawrence Summers and the deficit hawks? What then? Well, this is the consequence. It, it could undercut support for a big enough economic stimulus plan as to be utterly ineffective, as the Obama stimulus plan was uh, back in 2010. We had miserable economics for about half of the workforce since 2011, which precisely helped Donald Trump win the presidency. Even at $1.9 trillion, the stimulus can be considered too low for effective economic relief as, as we have mentioned before, over half of all working age Americans do not have a full-time living wage job. That's about 104 million people. Divide 1.9 trillion into 104 million workers, and it ends up in not including children, not including seniors. Uh, that ends up being about $18,269 per distressed worker. And much of that is going to shore up state local and tribal governments, unemployment insurance programs, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a princely sum for sure. I'll say. I can <laughs> yeah. 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 So, you know, for inflation to really take effect, there's got to be a lot of goods and services out there that uh, can't be bought uh, can't, you know, can't be bought up because there's too much money circulating around. That's, I, I don't, I don't think anyone seriously can consider that to be a problem. <laughs> I think that's the problem. I mean, at least for local economies that are hit so hard. I mean, you're not going out. You're not, yeah, it's just not reaching us. Right. And plus there's, there's this, uh, there, uh, we have covered in the past, there's a, you know, maybe 25 or more percent of all renters and homeowners are behind in their payments of either yeah. rent yeah. or mortgages. And so um, a lot of this money, you know, in the stimulus plan is going to go to pay off landlords and banks, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, just to pay bills, it's, you know, 
just to cover your bills, that's not what's going to cause inflation. In, inflation is, you know, if people have money, you know, uh, so much money that, you know, yeah. they're looking at buying boats and things like that. Mm -hmm. That's we're not in that situation, at I'm least, you know, against boats. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was just a conversation oh, uh, Chris, Chris. I had the other day about how how I'd never buy a big boat because it's just a money pit, right? And plus I don't even have the money for it. So oh, <laughs> I, just a little sailboat. So. Oh nice. Yeah. A little sunfish type of long. Yes. Oh nice. Yeah. Well that's yeah, that's not what I mean. It's the kind of yeah, that those would be fun. Um yeah, and I guess let me point out that you know when you look at what's going on with the lower half or lower eighty percent of our wealth um, compared to you know the top twenty percent or one percent, the reason part of the reason those figures come out that the top part has so much more wealth is because so many people's wealth is negative. Yes, they There's owe so much in debt that that I mean I mean it's like we're we're a sharecroppers. Basically. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, yeah, there, there, you know, we owe, we owe, so off to work we go. It's mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. the old, the old yeah. saying. Um, farm, you know, I mean, it's just like you can't get ahead. Right. You can't get ahead. And, um, and that's not because people are living high on the hog. That's for sure. Right. Um, right. So, okay. If they are, it's definitely borrowed. So yeah, so what's next? Well, in our current news, oh. um, despite the rollout, however slow of some vaccines against COVID-19, the pandemic is still with us in the US. The overall number of new daily COVID-19 cases is slowly dropping to a rate of about 54,000 cases a day. Worldwide, most countries' rates of new cases is also going down. But there are two notable exceptions, the European Union and Brazil. For those of you who believe that we need to risk COVID infection to save the economy, well, the economy will not recover until people feel safe enough from the coronavirus and who have enough money to spend into the economy. The World Health Organization advised governments that before reopening the economy, rates of positivity and testing should remain at 5% or lower for at least 14 days, which means that of all tests conducted, how many came back positive for COVID-19 should be 5% or less for two weeks. Montana the past two weeks has met the goal with a steady positivity rate of 3%. Some of the highest positivity rates in the nation are in Idaho, steady at 26%, and South Dakota dropping to 14%. Yikes. Yeah, Wyoming is steady at 4% and has met the WHO standard for partially reopening the economy. North Dakota, which had also exceeded the WHO standards, has now fallen below them with an increasing positivity rate of 6%. Montana has reported 53 hospitalizations as of Friday, a decrease of 14 from one week ago. Um, and I know, actually know one of those people. So I hope you do, I hope you're well, you do well. Uh, this is an important uh, this is an improvement over earlier this winter, but it is still continuing to put stress on weary staff and filling up ICU beds and stretching medical resources in the state to its limit. And according to a report on January 15th in STAT, a new more transmissible variant of the virus that causes COVID-19 
could sweep the U.S. in coming weeks and become the dominant strain as soon as March, leading to a new surge of cases through the spring, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warned. And that, that uh, variety has uh, been going around. So we may not be out of the woods yet. So, so you're saying that according to WHO, the World Health Organization, uh, only now can Montana begin to slowly reopen the economy, but things are way more open than that, aren't they? Yep, you're correct. Um, so it may be tempting to think otherwise, but we are a long ways from beat it, beating COVID-19. And we reopened way too soon as we still don't have enough money in working people's hands, compounding the problems and trying to control the pandemic. Congress's ineffective action has put states in a very tough position, either close down the economy, control the COVID, but severely reducing people's income, or leave the economy partially open to allow people more economic security, but to allow the pandemic to infect and kill more people than otherwise would be the case. Hmm. So no matter what you choose, it creates some harm. Yeah, indeed. And um, it, 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 it does, yes. And it, that's, that, that's a failure of Congress, in my opinion. These COVID-19 figures are according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website and the state of Montana. We're certainly nowhere done with this virus yet, as it's still at large in the U.S. and spreading. At almost 532,000 deaths, the U.S. is still the world leader in COVID-19 deaths by far. As the COVID-19 pandemic took hold, life expectancy in the United States dropped one full year during the first half of 2020, according to a February 18th Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report, with even greater declines seen among Black and Hispanic people. The U.S. accounted for 20% of all the deaths in the world and for 25% of the confirmed cases, all with still only 4% of the world's population. Uh, exceptional. Pretty grim. Yeah that's, yeah, that's something we should not be exceptional at. And we have been saying since February, and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is completely beaten, it's still not completely beaten, no matter what you think. It is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks, to distance themselves from others, and to frequently wash their hands if we are going to beat it. In Montana, we need to bend the curve down this way so our hospitals are not overwhelmed. Solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential. For every person that does not do these precautions, we are that much further from controlling the virus, achieving herd immunity through vaccination, and fully reopening the economy. Yeah, and then also discouraging the uh, mutations too. Right, exactly. To consider that the more it's out there, then the more they're going to get a chance, those little bugs, to do their their, their right. So right. What about the vaccines? How are they coming? The vaccinations, rather. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, overall, uh, slow. Uh, Montana has only fully immunized 10.6% uh, of our population as of Friday. Um, in Missoula County, appointments are now opening for those over the age of 60 and everyone who has certain health conditions of any age above 16. And uh, some good news we reported last week was the Biden administration has delivered on a promise to allow teachers, school workers, and daycare providers to get vaccinated by the end of this month. This despite Governor Gianforti's pushing teachers off of the essential workers category 
for advanced inoculation with a vaccine. Yeah, that is really some good news, finally. Uh, I'm almost afraid to ask, uh, what about the economic front? Any good news? <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got you uh, uh, a little gun shy too, don't I? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, yes, there is actually. Finally, the so-called COVID-19 stimulus package was passed. And it, it is big, $1.9 trillion big, named the American Rescue Plan, as we said before. It will cut only a single check of $1,400 per person, making under $75,000 a year. So it's not much of a stimulus in that way. Much more money is needed to be put into people's pockets for that to happen. In the Senate, the stimulus checks became means tested. Uh, which means, you know, the, if you're above $75,000 a year, you get less or zero of that $1,400 check. Um, what, but Representative Ilhan Omar of Minneapolis pointed out on March 6th, quote, we obviously are now ultimately sending money to less people than the Trump administration. There are going to be 17 million people who will get less money. This is not the promise we made, end quote. Yeah, and it's not the full 2000 that was promised in Georgia this January. Yep, that's, yeah, that's right. Um, however, the ARA uh, does break new and important legislative ground. The child tax credit expansion under the legislation will have the effect of a guaranteed income uh, and increase the income of the poorest 20% of Americans this year by about 20%. Of course, this is a temporary expansion, not a permanent expansion, um, which of course, uh, if it's the poorest 20%, uh, will mostly go to pay rent, lenders, medical bills, and the like. Uh, that said, it looks as if the Biden administration is properly sending money to the lowest income Americans to have the best economic stimulus uh, boost. And another new twist, according to the New York Times on March 7th, the ARP will pro provides for $86 billion in funding uh, for about 185 union pension plans that are so close to collapse that without the rescue, more than a million retired truck drivers, real retail clerks, builders, and others could be forced to forego retirement income. The bailout targets multi-employer multi pension plans, which bring, bring groups of companies together with a union to provide guarantee benefits. All told, about 1,400 of the plans cover about 10.7 million active and retired workers, often in fields like construction or entertainment, where the workers move from job to job. As the workforce ages, an alarming number of the plans are running out of money. Trend predated the pandemic and is a result of fading unions, serial bankruptcies, and the misplaced hope that investment income would foot most of the bill so that employers and workers wouldn't have to. The measure would give the weakest plans enough money to pay hundreds of thousands of retirees, a number that will grow in the future, their full pensions for the next 30 years. Wow, that's, that, that's a boom. So what else? It is. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, and, and among the reasons I think uh, it should be looked at is why uh, I, I'm not sure why pensions are, are uh, you know, uh, dependent upon the stock market, you know, or mutual funds or any of that kind of stuff. Why are people's retirement 
it's, yeah, uh, yeah, funded by the casino that's Wall Street. Yeah, I mean, well, it, no, it, why? Yes. Know, why they pushed it with the 401ks and stuff is so they could have the money to play around with, and that's what they're doing. Right. But you even, know, but, but even on the stock market, even defined uh, benefit pensions, which are the gold standard of pensions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're almost entirely funded on investments, right? And w- worker, workers put money into it, but then in order to grow it, they have to grow that amount. They have to uh, uh, invest in the stock market or mutual funds or, yeah. you know, bond, stocks and bonds in order to meet the, you know, the current needs. And that's, that's a cockamamie way to fund that. I, th- I, I, think, I think the government should be guaranteeing pensions for everybody, <laughs> you know, um, and, well, yeah. uh, it, and, and not just in the guarantee, you know, the, have some sort of decent retirement. Um, I mean, Social Security is good, but it's not enough to live on. And, um, and to expand that to the point where if you're not so fortunate to have a union pension plan that's being bailed out by, you know, the uh, American Rescue uh, Act is, um, you know, you're kind of out of luck. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of the previous plans, at least the first one, a lot of it went to the big guys. You know, yes. They, they, they socialization served, you know, what do they say? Uh, socialism for the rich. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're going to mention that a little bit later. But yeah, you're exactly you're exactly right. Um, so um, another thing in the ARP that's interesting is it includes the largest investment in Native communities ever by the federal government, thirty one point two billion dollars for all kinds of way long overdue investments in healthcare, housing, education, infrastructure, and to also to keep endangered languages alive. Mm-hmm. Crucial. That's wonderful. Yeah, and it probably needs to be more. Uh, I I would I would guess. I wouldn't have any idea what that figure might be, but um, and then further, there's a thirty nine billion dollar investment in child care centers and three hundred and fifty billion dollars for state, local, and tribal governments. As the Daily Yonder reported on March eleventh. Quote, small local governments that received little or no direct aid from previous COVID relief packages will fare much better in the new legislation that Congress passed Wednesday. The American Rescue Plan will provide funds to each of the nation's 3,143 county-level governments, plus more than 26,000 municipalities. In 2020, the CARES Act provided direct aid only to cities of 500,000 residents or more, so that bypassed Montana completely. Although, although states allocated some funding to additional local governments, which actually happened in Montana. Yeah, and there's little or no dollars then going to the wealthy in the country from the um, ARP. Oh, and here's this too. I, I wanted to add that um, I remember I was researching, I uh, can't remember what the issue was, but um, local governments and how they stabilize the economy. Um, you know, because there's all this pressure to reduce government, et cetera, et cetera. But um, good local government, you know, useful local government really is a big uh, stabilizer in local economies. And when you cut back and cut back, then you're really depriving you of services to begin with, of course, mm-hmm. but also that stabilizing in the that stabilization. 
Yeah, exactly right. And for some reason, um, that was a big um, state and local governments were a big target for the Republicans. Oh, they still uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and still still are. And and it's because, I mean, because they object to some of the local governments who who took that stabilization seriously and uh, were providing all kinds of services, right? And um, and I think to be fair, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, some states and, and local governments um, because of loss of tax revenue have become, uh, you know, have been working under deficits, which you can't do as a state or local government. You can't have government deficits. On the federal level, you can and probably should most of the time. But on, on state and local governments, they can't, they can't create their own money. So they have to live within their means. Well, um, you know, if, if there's tax cut, you know, Republicans have in this in Montana have been all about tax cuts and tax cuts, tax cuts and tax cuts, which cuts the revenue to governments, but the demand grows and grows and grows. And if you try to meet that, those demands without increasing taxes, you get into fiscal trouble. And I think um, that vice is what, I mean, the more cynical Republicans are probably trying to do is to make ineffective local and state governments that aren't uh, you know, cutting more taxes, right? Or trying to meet the needs of the people they're less able to regulate. They're less able to check on whose sewage is going into what lake. Take Flathead, um, right? You know, and um, what else? I can't remember what else I was going to say. But yeah, um, all right. Uh, yeah, and then also, if you take the service and you privatize it, well, then you then on top of having taken it away from the common, you know, good, then you get right. to try to make a profit off of it. And if you get that into the private center sector. We'll get into that later, I think, when we talk about nursing homes. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, once, you're, once you're out for money, then you're out for, you yeah. regulate it. And then and so it, it, it's a catch 22. If you cut down the government, you get it private, then you have to be able to regulate it. So it doesn't hurt the people that you're reaching out to. Yeah. And, and there is no, and if there's no government there to regulate it, then oh. It's it's that's neoliberalism yeah. in a in a nutshell, yeah. I mean, <laughs> right? Like, you know, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me. Yeah. So I'm I'm glad that they the the Democrats just ignored the Republicans and went ahead and, and boosted uh, funding for state and local governments because they're totally depend they're dependent on on you know local taxation and if people are unemployed or people can't pay their bills if they people can't even pay their mortgage how are they going to pay their property taxes right and it's uh it's a, a very their, their house to somebody from out of state you know is what they're going to do yeah or just leave it vacant right have have more homeless on the streets i think this is i think this is the game plan right is to is try to make us homeless so we're uh but uh, that's my more cynical side saying that um, they no one would ever say that out loud. I don't think, <laughs> but that's the effect. Yeah, that's that's the effect of neoliberalism for sure. Um, so um, got to be a better name than neoliberalism. I mean, I'm sorry, but well, it's so you can say market fundamentalism. I, I whatever you know. It's just somehow we got to figure out a better name. I mean. I'm fond, you know, of everything, but 
it takes years to understand what it means. <laughs> yeah, but it, essentially what it means is that the government should almost not exist. Well, and, and, and the private sector, the, the marketplace can solve all of our problems. And that's really all that neoliberalism is, 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 is that. And so- um, I, How you make an out. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and so the, the rich can make out, the, of course the rich can take care of, they got a lot of money, they can take care of themselves. Most people can't. Um, and speaking of that, um, you know, uh, there's little to no dollars going to the wealthy in this country, you know, from the, from the American Rescue Plan. Um, but they did okay. make out, they made out like bandits under the CARES Act last year. That was so galling. I could hardly stand it. Yeah. You just knew it was going to, and all the companies that are just destabilized, you know, oh, they're going to just snap them up, all the hospitals. It's going to be a mess. Yep. That's according to plan. That's the, according to plan. So. So it's, so the, the ARP then it's a, mm. is a, seems like it's got some really good points, but it's still temporary. It's still really a, a, a Band-Aid, which is better than, than a poke in the eye. Yes. <laughs> well said. Yeah, I like that. Um, you're, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, as important as this legislation is, because like you said, many people are in desperate straits right now and don't need a poke in the eye. Uh, it is still not big enough, nor does it provide the transformational changes necessary to undo the economic disparities that made the pandemic far worse than it should have been in this country. For example, it only temporarily holds off the foreclosure eviction crisis, which is just around the corner, though it does provide an additional $27 billion in emergency rental assistance, which is probably a drop in the ocean, right? Well, okay. And well, and, and so uh, as we mentioned last week, Albina as Asmanova, an associate professor of politics at the University of Kent's Brussels School, School of International Studies, and uh, someone we quote frequently on the show, Marshall Auerbach, who's a researcher at the Levy Economics Institute of Bard College, wrote the following for the Independent Media Institute on March 3rd. Quote, Biden's stimulus is not the stuff of economic revolution. It's a mix of common sense and keeping the lights on. And the fundamental thinking beyond, behind the stimulus approach reflects a con continuation of neoliberal policies of the past 40 years. Instead of advancing broader social programs that could uplift the population, the solutions are predicated on improving individual purchasing power and family circumstances. Such a vision of society as a collection of enterprising individuals is a hallmark of the neoliberal policy formula, which as the stimulus bill is about to make clear, is still prevalent within the Democratic and Republican parties. This attention to individual purchasing power promises to be the basis for bipartisan agreement over the next four years. The reality is that social programs on healthcare and education and a new era of labor and banking regulation would put the wider society on sounder feet than a check for $1,400, end quote. So that's why the pandemic hits people so hard, 
is because there was so much weakness in the economy as we went into it. Absolutely right. So for instance, passing a $15 an hour minimum wage bill, which is not included in this bill, would have directly helped millions of workers pull themselves out of poverty and underemployment. It could have been a major structural change in the economic inequality within a bill that is just temporary and a Band-Aid. Unfortunately, many Democratic senators, including Montana's John Tester, voted down the increase in the minimum wage in the stimulus package, killing it as part of that legislation. It could have been one part of getting our economy and our politics on a sounder footing. Other programs that can be added to this list include Medicare for All, student debt cancellation, the Green New Deal, and a federal jobs guarantee. Simply getting us through the pandemic just sets us up for a meltdown politically and economically down the road. What Congress should have done all along is what Representative Pramila Jayapal, Democrat of Seattle, proposed last year, which should have been the model moving forward to this year during the pandemic. Jayapal proposed and what most industrialized countries in the world actually did was to guarantee wages and business overhead costs for the duration of the pandemic. Yeah, so that would have stabilized the actual businesses and not left them over to take over and to being taken over bankrupted and then the employees would still be attached to their workplace rather than getting 600 bucks and then off they go. Exactly. And, and just never came back. Right, exactly. And two, uh, you know, in, in testifying before the legislature and listening in the Montana legislature and listening to some of the representatives talk and their business, a lot of them are business people, right? <laughs> totally. Um, and, they're, and they're very, I mean, I, I, I sympathize with their uh, anxiety about their businesses, right? Oh, and yeah. because a, lo- a lot of them are going to go down and this also could have been prevented if Congress last year would have, you know, taken these steps to stabilize everything during this. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, then to talk about making some advances in, you know, like the uh, having a living wage or, or the green new deal or Medicare for all those sort of transformational programs uh, would put us on a much better footing for the next time a pandemic comes around. Yeah. Yeah. Like it couldn't happen twice. (laughs) Well, in our history, it's happened many times, right? I mean, not in our, not in our personal history, but in human history. Yeah. And climate, you know, it's driving the, it's driving pandemics at us. So what do you expect? Right. It's going to get worse that way until we fix that. I mean, we're, we've got a lot of problems here we need to deal with. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, so you, what did you want to go at next? Well, um, on March 10th, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Protect Our Right to Organize, or PRO Act, with five Repu- Republican votes, along with all Democrats except Henry Cuellar of Texas. The PRO Act largely undoes the Taft-Hartley Act. Passed in 1947, Taft-Hartley crippled the labor movement in the U.S. and the world by empowering bosses to threaten and overpower workers seeking to organize for basic human needs on the job. Taft-Hartley was also passed to prevent labor organizing from threatening the Southern plantation economy built on the enslavement and violent oppression of black people. The PRO Act would undo many of the key policies of Taft-Hartley, 
and contribute to the unraveling of its racist and classist lineage. Among other things, the PRO Act would end right to work in so-called right to work in 27 states, limit, yeah, limit employers. That's, that's only the tip of the iceberg though. It would limit employers' ability to classify workers as non-employees if they really are employees. It would expand the so-called card check election process. Uh, It would prevent bosses from threatening and firing organizers and otherwise interfering in the union election process with impunity, which they almost do now. It will permit workers to engage in secondary boycotts, which is absolutely far bigger than the right to work uh, ban, and, and prevent employers from permanently replacing strikers. So those last two... Um, a secondary boycott, a lot of people don't understand, but it was, it was what labor used during the 30s and 40s very effectively mm-hmm. to gain power. So if they walked out on strike on an employer, um, you know, number one, they couldn't be permanently replaced as called for under Taft-Hartley, which limits strikes tremendously, yeah. but also it couldn't allow, it wouldn't allow uh workers to not only picket their own work establishment, but go to other establishments, other businesses that were, you know, uh, providing the employer with supplies and, and maybe, labor. Right? Maybe the same company, but a different work site, or is that not the same? Uh, well, if it's the same company, they can legally do that. But well, if it's can. a different, it's a different company, you cannot. So say for instance, uh, say there was a strike against, uh, you know, Albertons, right? Um, Albertsons, I mean, um, uh, grocery stores. And for instance, there's no, I have no news of that, but if there were, um, you know, like uh, uh, Cisco uh, delivers food to Albertsons, right? And um, what could happen is that the, uh, the workers at Albertsons could go to the Cisco oh. warehouse and picket mm-hmm. that. The Teamster drivers with Cisco could refuse oh. to cross the picket line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in that way, you know, totally shut down the business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's what, that's, uh, you know, in a labor movement that is, has the, you know, the organizing culture from the, CIO days of the 1930s and 40s that has a legal right to secondary boycott, you're going to see the power of unions explode. Right to work is, 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 is kind of a minor detail at this point compared to that kind of power. So, um, so this is a big deal. This bill is, is a big deal. Um, and the Biden administration uh, promise to pass the PRO Act and has been endorsed by more than 180 labor unions and 45 Senate Democrats as of, as of today. How many does and it on, need? what's that? How many does it need? I mean, is it like 50? Why are it all only 45 out of 50? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, it's going to, because it's probably not able to go through reconciliation, it's going to be subject to the filibuster. Okay. Oh. So you need 10, you need all the Democrats and 10 Republicans. You need 60 votes in order to break the filibuster, which is a good reason to get rid of the filibuster, in my opinion. But uh, there are five uh, senators, both senators from the state of Arizona, 
uh, and a few others uh, that are Democrats that have yet to sign on uh, as co-sponsors to the PRO Act. I'm glad to say that John Tester, our Democratic Senator here in Montana, has signed on to the PRO Act. And, uh, but of course, uh, our other U.S. Senator Republican, Steve Daines, has not. Mm-hmm. That's shocking, I know. Just, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, but uh, in, on March 7th, okay, the Democratic Socialists of America, or DSA, launched its, its uh, primary campaign to get the PRO Act passed in the Senate. The event was held on Zoom with well over a thousand people on the call and featured DSA members, um, author Naomi Klein, U.S. Representative Jamal Bowman of New York, and Sarah Nelson, president of the Flight Attendants Union. Yeah, thank you. Uh, they're all cool. Yeah, they're all, they're all excellent uh, people. And so, and we will have more on this as the campaign proceeds. But it is not an exaggeration to say that passage of this bill would be a huge part of the transformation and revival of the U.S. labor movement. Okay, so you're going to like the next topic, I bet. <laughs> yeah, well, and speaking of the Democratic Socialists of America, the Nevada chapters uh, of DSA have completed an elected leadership takeover of the Nevada Democratic Party. According to The Intercept on March 8th, quote, the battle between the insurgent progressive wing of the party and what's known in Nevada as the Reed machine after U.S. Senator Harry Reed, now retired, a tightly run, and he was actually, he was president of the Senate uh, during Obama's term. Um, That Reed machine is a tightly run operation still guided by former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reed And this uh, battle began five years ago when Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders organized support for his 2016 presidential primary run while Reid was working behind the scenes to help his opponent, Hillary Clinton. Over the next four years, outside organizations like DSA exploded in size and strength. The Sanders campaign focused on organizing tens of thousands of young Latino voters in the state with the goal of activating people whom the party hadn't bothered with before. And it worked. In the 2020 cycle, after investing heavily in Nevada, Sanders won a commanding victory in the Nevada caucuses. When the Sanders campaign ended, the organizers behind it were ready to take their project to the next level. Progressive groups like the Clark County Left Caucus, of which Whitmer, who was just elected chair, Uh, and local DSA chapters had begun organizing for Sanders across Nevada since 2016. They used their momentum and the state level delegates they picked up during the caucuses to continue activating progressive pockets in the state with a focus on local office. Progressives led by the left caucus won a majority on the state democratic board this summer, a sign that their momentum was growing even without a candidate at the top of the democratic ticket to get behind. Yeah, that's, quote. that's impressive. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it, it is impressive. And it, 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 it shows that organizing will work and that a progressive message uh, can be popular, right? Um, at least uh, among Democrats. However, when the oh. election results were found out, according oh. to The Intercept, all four of the staff quit 
together uh, so much for unity and almost a half million dollars in the party's account was transferred to a democratic senatorial fund controlled by the Reed machine. <laughs> so well, not going to really strengthen the democratic party in Nevada. I guess it's, I'll take my marbles and go home. That's exactly what happened. And I think it's, uh, you know, ever since Bernie Sanders started to run for president, there have been people uh, in the Democratic Party who have basically said the, the one thing they don't want to have happen is Bernie Sanders to win. And so they'd rather lose and have Bernie Sanders lose than to win as a Democrat with Bernie Sanders on the ticket. And to me, that's uh, one that's ridiculous. And, but it also goes to show how deep sort of big money has infiltrated in, into the Democratic Party. Because obviously Sanders wasn't going to have any, uh, you know, big funders calling the shots uh, like it is on the, you know, national level. So, uh, so this, this is a really good indication, I think, of how politics within the Democratic Party really, really are. Hmm. Hmm. Well, maybe you don't need the money if you got the people, but it certainly does help. It does help. But, you know, even Sanders showed he could run national campaigns and out fundraise by not, in, you know, candidates that are taking money from rich donors. And then he, he showed that you don't need rich donors. You can, you can uh, get uh, $27 from millions of people and you can run a very effective uh, campaign with enough money on that kind of thing, instead of having to bow and scrape before the rich in order to help them fund your campaign. And, you know, it definitely reflects in the kind of legislation you would then support as a, as a representative. So you're talking, I mean, if you don't have, so Bernie had, even though Bernie had said, okay, we're, we're still going, it's just you don't have me at the top. Um, that presumably they're working on issues. And if, if it's doing what oh, yeah. organizing in, in, in Nevada, then that's your ties with, um, you know, that, that depth. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, DSA nationally has got a couple of priorities. I mean, one is to pass the PRO Act to, to help revive the labor movement. That's a big issue. Medicare for all, canceling student debt. I mean, these, uh, uh, you know, Green New Deal, these kind of things are, are big, big issues. And um, it is really pretty much in the, you know, in the, in the main uh, with DSA chapters that this, these are the kind of things that are supported. So, but it's, but it's one thing to have those as your wish list. It's another to be able to organize, right? And so, I think that's the story that, you know, often gets lost in the media is that um, there's a lot of organizing work that goes on. A lot of it is thankless, behind the scenes, long term. I mean, this is five years since Sanders first ran, and they're only beginning to do that. But I think it's a hopeful sign to show people that, look, I mean, um, I'd rather have it like the Montana Democrats uh, be, you know, have the big tent, right. And have all sorts of people in leadership also, you know, covering all sorts of factions, right. 
mm-hmm. uh, and coming together and, and fighting in, in using the deep organizing, deep canvassing techniques that DSA and other and some unions unite here uh, use uh, to win battles, to win things, right? Because mm-hmm. um, that's the whole point of doing this, right? Is trying to win yeah. things. <laughs> yeah. And there's interesting stuff, you know, about how, you know, when a candidate then gets in office, how receptive are they to actually having people hold their, the, them to their promises? Or do they want really people to then just take a back seat, say, I'm here, you know, I'll take care of it. Just leave me alone. I'll do things the way I think is best. Yeah. And people are buying that. And, and it shows, I think, that Bernie did not do that, which, of course, he didn't. It was a big contrast to what happened with the, the Yes movement after, after Obama, of course. Yeah, and, and they really are not receptive. I mean, but how much will well, the whole question of just just don't expect the person in office to really be pleased is what I I read a cool article. Can't remember where it was, of course. Um, I mean, keep doing it, but just don't expect that they're really going to say, "Oh, thanks for making me do it." You know? Yeah, right. It's like, well, you you don't have to thank me. Just do it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think that makes Bernie Sanders, why he's the most popular politician in the United States, more popular than Trump. um, And Trump would be maybe second, um, I I would think, um, is because he walks the walk, right? He just, he, he, I mean, he's still showing, I mean, he didn't, he didn't get the nomination for president, but he's in there fighting for like, you know, raising uh, the minimum wage to $15 an hour through the, through mm-hmm. this bill, the ARP bill. Um, it's kind of a big favor if you ask me. I mean, it's, if you don't get that you've got to back what you're doing up once you're in there, then you, you, I mean, it's just two years till, not even that till the next election. You have to have something to show for it, at least your good intentions, you know, and that you're willing to really scrap for it. Right, exactly. And, and scrap for the, you know, the average person. I think this is, um, you know, the, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, the, uh, lots of people are feeling totally disengaged from politics because, um, you know, there's promises and then they don't really fight for the promises. Right. And this is kind of the thing with Biden that, I mean, he's already kind of backpedaled on a couple of things. He, he helped deliver and Democrats delivered on this ARP and that's a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it still isn't enough. And it's, uh, you know, the, the, there's so much, you know, more work to be done, even if they fail on a couple of things, if they re- really go all out, I mean, Biden didn't go all out on raising the minimum wage. He, he didn't, he didn't go all out on that. Um, so it, it was uh, in terms of like pressuring Democrats in, 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 uh, in the Senate to vote for it. Um, and yeah. he's got he's to do better on the PRO Act, right? He's, I mean, he just he, he, Democrats that undermined it. I mean, he needed, I can't remember how many people to, I mean, it just took one person to say, well, I don't think I will. You right. Know, that was the one right. person I was aware of, you know, you know, where was the guy from? I can't remember his name, but in any case, you know, having one person when you're at 50, one person is like, there ought to be something you could, I mean, what would, what would Lyndon Johnson have done? You know, he probably, exactly. probably would have offered him something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I won't, he, he might've offered them. I won't break your legs if you vote for this. <laughs> well, that's an offer. 
<laughs> that's an offer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, he, he was pretty blunt, apparently. I mean, not breaking okay. legs, but oh, yeah, Lyndon Johnson, <laughs> he was okay. uh, he was colorful. Let's let's put it this way. He was colorful in uh, when the microphone wasn't on. Right. So um, so he's you know, he could swear a mean streak and he was he was pre- he could be pretty brutal with mm-hmm. with his allies even right he but he it, but he knew how to horse trade too right he would i guess mean, i was talking yeah i mean i would even let somebody horse trade if they got the work done up, right up to point up you know yeah up but, to a point yeah but that but that's it was johnson that really got through medicaid and medicare yeah. right it, it was in and it, it, there was a lot of opposition to that and he managed to mm-hmm. he worked it hard right Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think given, you know, uh, how many senators, including our own tester voted against the minimum wage bill, um, you know, Biden, I, I don't, I, I don't think Biden was, uh, especially pressing that one. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got more opportunities, right? There's the pro act, there's uh, infrastructure bill. There could be, uh, plenty of other bills. I mean, there could be, you know, I mean, he could, He's sort of backpedaling on forgiving student debt. Ten thousand dollars? Are you kidding me? Uh, th- that's <laughs> that's not even a year's year well, of school. Rigged again, student. The whole bankruptcy thing. I wish yeah. I was better at remembering the articles I've been reading. Bankruptcy. Oh, 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 oh. He's he comes from <laughs> Delaware. It's the thing. <laughs> yes. The article you had from uh, the Atlantic. Back whenever I was trying, uh, oh, it was another article. As far as you come from, you know, Delaware, it's a corporate state, you know, fiscal people, bankruptcy. So Biden was big on the whole bankruptcy thing. So that shouldn't be a surprise. No. I hate it when they took the bankruptcy rights away from students. I didn't realize they took it away from everybody. And it just, you know, you can let companies go bankrupt and they make money on the deal. Right. You know, you know, it's like a ploy they use, and then they do all this fancy stuff, which we ever get, if we we may not get to it, but still, jeez. Um, yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. No, no, you're right. You're right. And so, you know, leadership makes a difference, and and yeah. Biden, Biden is hanging by a thread, in my opinion. I we're all hanging uh, by his thread. Yeah, exactly. And he's right. got he's got to come forward and deliver. I mean. Uh, otherwise, I, I've been making this prediction too. If 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 Biden doesn't come forth and deliver some really big transformative things, uh, you know, even an infrastructure, a big, huge, giant infrastructure project, right? Um, if he doesn't deliver on that, uh, not only I think our Democrats are going to lose Congress in the next by election, I think we're going to have Trump as president again in 2024. So if, if you don't want to have Trump again as president and Biden barely, barely beat Trump, it was, it was a pretty close election mm-hmm. um, that, um, you know, then, then that's waiting in the wings. If you don't want that, then jump all over Biden and make him yeah. do, make him live up to his promises. That's, yeah. that's you know, the- I think it's important if something can turn the economy around, but bear in mind, I mean, for sure, if you just take the money, the thing with money is it doesn't have your name on it or your picture on it, you know, and it's gone. <laughs> I mean, I don't feel like I really own my money. I feel like my money passes through me, mm-hmm. you know, so right. it's gone. Right. 
then I'm back to being, you know, like, well, better keep coming because, you know, if it doesn't keep coming, you know, if right. something structurally changed, then, then the money that he gave is, is that, you know, it's gone. And, right. Right. Um, and if structurally you haven't changed the, the, you know, your housing crisis and who's getting kicked out of their homes and, and they're permanently, you know, all this structural stuff that it's, it's just doesn't keep on giving as right. far as your reputation goes. Well, ho I hope, I hope that we pull this off. There's still a lot of stake at stake. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's. I mean, it's not over yet, but it's you know, it is. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's no room for major errors here, right? On the part of uh, a part of Democrats. Uh, now, the um, what happened in Nevada again, right? Is uh, no, no, it's fine. Um, I, I think that it it shows you what kind of transition you know we're moving to politically. For the Democratic Party, the Republican Party is divided as well, right? And um, whether or not they're going to go to, you know, a real populism, the the Republicans, a real populism that could govern with a populist Democrats too. Uh, and I'm sorry, uh, what did you just say? Well, populist, the the populism of the Republicans, which is what Trump tapped into, but he never. He never delivered, right? He was he was too absorbed in himself, and he was too inept of a politician to be able to deliver on the the, the sort of populist message of of uh, you know uh, you know the economy is rotten at the bottom for those on the bottom, and um, that needs to be fixed. That's job number one. Okay. Not the economy at the top. The, the, the billionaires are making out fine. Thank you very much. They don't need, they, they need less money is what they need. <laughs> but um, if the Republicans are going to become a populist party, okay, uh, which is in doubt, um, you know, that could be a way that, that, you know, the Republican, that, that could be the future, you know, if you had two populist parties, um, trying to figure out how to deliver for ordinary people, um, at, you know, at the expense of the, the powerful change into a pop. I mean, I, I probably, maybe I just don't understand how you're defining populism because to populism to me is, is not the issues that they're involved in. It's how you're getting there. So no, to me, it's, to me, it's, it's absolutely the issue. Totalitarian populism, and you could have a progressive, hey, help right. the people populism. And I don't see the Republican Party going, I could see them going to a repressive totalitarian populism sooner right. than I could see them going to a, hey, let's take care of the little guy and make sure he does okay. I mean, well, but they give them what they want in the way of economics, but you're still going to push them into, you know, the totalitarian. Total, I mean, you can use. Yes. Social yes. issues. Here, I'll give you all the money you want as long as I can repress you at the same time, you know, just so you don't, you know, as long as I keep you happy with hating immigrants or racism or something. Right, right. I'm saying where's versus the other. So, I mean, so I'm confused with when you're saying, oh, well. Well, no, I, I, I think, yeah, I think you're, no, I think, I think you're exactly right. I think okay. that the, that the strong man who's going to deliver Right. is the Republican form of populism, okay? okay. But, deli but deliver, they ha the strong man has to deliver. If the strong man doesn't deliver, then it's just same old, same old, right? And on the, it's on the, it's on the right, 
Right. And on the Democratic side, it's more it's more socialist. Basically, the populism is, is based in socialism where you have the government deliver for the common, you know, for the ordinary person. And but it has to deliver. If it doesn't deliver, then, you know, then it fails as well. The the right now, both parties are still controlled by corporate elites. Right. And by billionaires and by you know, and, and the people who want to look after their interests. And that's the only reason I make the distinction between populism and because uh, both parties right now, they both believe, you know, to varying degrees, uh, the leadership. Um, and that may be changing, right? That's, th- th- there's some flexibility there, uh, but it has been consistent, you know, especially with Biden, for instance, in his career, it has been consistent where, uh, you know, everything is fine the way it is. We'll, we're just going to, uh, you know, on the Democrat side, we're going to uh, make sure, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, we're not going to talk about the rich and powerful and Don't unions are, uh, yeah, we're, we like the unions, but we're not going to help them. And uh, basically, you know, we'll take, we'll make major stands over cultural issues like, you know, racism or sexism. And then in the Republican side of things, uh, the, the status quo is, yeah, we like the big corporations. Uh, we like Wall Street. We like, you know, we hate Hollywood. We hate, you know, the, and they engage in cultural wars too. We hate Dr. Seuss or whatever, right? I mean, or Dr. Seuss is being silenced. I mean, these sort of absurd kind of, of politics, they get you know, the status quo, the centrists of both parties are, are being, you know, twisted in so many different ways uh, because it's, they can't maintain their position. I mean, clearly the country is falling apart. Clearly the economy is, is completely unequal. Clearly, you know, the, the wealthy have their way in this country. And, um, and so, uh, but that doesn't get votes, (laughs) you know, you have to, so, um, but anyway, so there's, there's, I hope I haven't gotten you too far off track too. Oh, no, 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 no problem. It's really about that both parties are in big change. And I think what happened in Nevada shows an example of the kind of change that could happen. Uh, it doesn't have to look exactly that way, but it, it, that kind of change is going to come to the Democrats and uh, whether the Republican populists are gonna be able to make a move. I mean, Tr- Trump is their albatross as far as I'm concerned. Uh, if, they're, if they really wanna see change, but they can't get away from Trump because Trump is inept. He's, it's all about him, not about anything well, else. So I, I think that he's, he, he, he says he likes people, you know, <laughs> he likes them and they're special and 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 he's there for him and he he says he doesn't look down on them and um i think that's what people want that's something i think that's a valid message um, that that really needs to be honed Um, but i but i think there's there's more to it than that though i think people need to get economic relief okay this is why um uh yeah, true. We're, we're going to have a break here pretty soon, but this is why. Um, no, it's fine. Um, it, it, this is why I think that uh, 
we can make common cause with a lot of people with a lot of Trump supporters because they're hurting just as bad economically as Democrats, right? As working class Democrats, right? The working class is hurting. It is not, you know, the wealthy class is not. And so um, they're making out like bandits. And so, um, you know, yeah, you can, you know, you can get a strong man like uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, which we're going to get to in a little bit, um, or Trump in this country or various other people. But, you know, Trump really didn't deliver. And that's why he didn't win the election. If he would have delivered something uh, more on, on the pandemic, right, in terms of money to people, I think he would have I think he would have beat Biden and uh, but he didn't, he, you know, he, he's too inept. <laughs> he's so, um, but anyway, and he still almost won, which is kind of a scary thing. Right. And that shows you how much people, how much trust the Democrats have lost as well. So among, you know, ordinary people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Welcome back to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. Um, you are listening on KFGM 105.5 FM in the Missoula Valley. Uh, and this is Missoula Community Radio. Um, please support Missoula Community Radio. You may be listening to us on uh, live stream at 1055kfgm.org. Or you may be listening to us at your own leisure in anywhere around the world that you have internet on our podcast, which is searchable on Spotify or Apple or other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. And today um, it's uh, uh, Sue Kirchmeyer uh, who is with us. Hi. And, uh, yeah, and so it's really good to have you here, Sue. And um, we've been having a lively conversation about the uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans. Um, so, um, 
we have uh, our next story. We're just going to continue on and we're going to go into a little bit of international news, which there's some very important international news that has happened uh, in the last week. Um, and according to an Associated Press story on March 7th, uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is proposing a series of steps to help jumpstart Afghanistan's stalled peace process between the government and the Taliban, according to a letter from Blinken to Ashra Ghani, Afghanistan's president, published Sunday by Afghanistan's Tolo News. The letter calls for bringing the two sides together for a UN-facilitated conference with foreign ministers and envoys from Russia, China, Pakistan, Iran, India, and the United States to discuss a unified approach to supporting peace in Afghanistan. Blinken also calls for holding talks between the Afghan government and Taliban in a senior level meeting in Turkey in the coming weeks to hammer out a revised proposal for a 90 day reduction in violence. The Secretary of State has also called on Special Envoy Zalme Khalizad to share with both the Afghan government and Taliban written proposals to help accelerate discussions, according to the Tolo News report. Blinken also made clear in the letter that the Biden administration continues to consider a full withdrawal of of the roughly 2,500 US forces in the country by the May 1st deadline negotiated by the Trump administration. Huh, so we might withdraw everything, everyone from Afghanistan this year? Well, I wouldn't hold your breath, Sue. Um, We have been on the brink of this for years only to have the military industrial media complex scream bloody murder about how the Taliban's gonna make all these advances and whatnot, and then it all falls apart. I'm just gonna say that um, there, 20 years in Afghanistan to bring the Taliban to heel has been an absolute failure. And um, nothing that we do in that country is going to be successful. There is only one option is to either, well, two options. Either we continue in our failure and we kill people and have our folks killed or we pull out. I I don't know how, uh, you know, the Biden administration is going to stand up to people in the Pentagon and in the uh, national security state and, you know, those who are making money off of all the arms sales that go into Afghanistan. I mean, we have spent uh, a, a, a ton of money there. And um, it's, it's basically been a failure from day one. Hmm. So hopefully the Biden administration can stand up to him and a lot, and, and maybe he's going to do, well, if Trump does it, I'm going to do the opposite, which would be a disaster for peace in the Middle East and to get us out of this endless war in Afghanistan. It's, it's got to come to an end. And I hope that, you know, he, he needs to stop it now. And, and yeah, we're going to cover some more. Another yeah, story. there's another story. I mean, another foreign policy story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems that the Biden uh, administration is continuing to rest foreign policy uh, back to the Obama years, um, which were not good years. According to Venezuelan analysis on March 9th, Venezuela has categorically rejected U.S. President Joe Biden's renewal of executive order 
13692. The renewal extends a state of national emergency, which has been the basis for Washington's sanctions re regime against Venezuela. The decree states that Venezuela represents an unusual and extraordinary threat to the U.S. national security and foreign policy, end quote. Uh, the order has been renewed annually by both former presidents Donald Trump and Barack Obama since its initial signing in 2015 by Obama, and has been widely denounced by the international community as well as at the United Nations with over, and with over 5 million Venezuelans signing a petition demanding its withdrawal. Um, pending his decision to Congress last Wednesday, Biden argued that, quote, the situation in Venezuela continues to pose an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security and foreign policy, end quote. He offered no further explanation. And, you know, uh, and Sue, I don't know if you listened to the show, but Jim and I have been covering Venezuela and actually Mick before that mm -hmm. um, for, uh, you know, since the show began. And uh, what the U.S. is doing currently is an economic blockade That's of Venezuela, right. yeah. which, is a, which is an act of war. And it has led to the deaths of thousands of people including children from hunger. It has thrown their economy totally into uh, disrepair. And um, it's, it's an act of war. It's, it is a malicious uh, act. And it's because, uh, you know, it, um, Hugo Chavez uh, was properly elected um, and uh, began the process of implementing socialism in Venezuela, and that's continued by his successor, Maduro. Uh, both those leaders, and Maduro has been popularly elected, um, and the U.S. has tried to install, both Obama administration and mm -hmm. the uh, Trump administration has tried to install uh, someone who's got absolutely no political foundation in Venezuela. And, uh, and so this is just plain old Monroe doctrine U.S. is going to throw its weight around and tell the people of Venezuela what kind of government they're going to have. That's that's all that this is. Mm -hmm. I can't remember oil. Can't remember Venezuela oil. is loaded with oil. Yeah. Yep, and that's part and it's part of the prize. I think that the you know Anthony Blinken and the Biden administration may be looking at um, supporting oil companies and their quest for uh, more oil. And I think, but I think also it sets, Venezuela has tried to be independent of the U.S., uh, like Cuba, like mm -hmm. Bolivia, uh, like Brazil under Lula da Silva, um, uh, politically. And, um, and that is what uh, it seems like the U.S. foreign policy establishment, which doesn't change much from president to president, by the way. It's pretty much the same folks. I wonder who um, the are of oil. Who's that? I wonder who the companies, the oil companies are down in Venezuela. I'm assuming we, we own them. Well, there, you know, some of them, some of them were kicked out of the country, but most of them continued to operate in the company, but they had to pay uh, pretty stiff excise taxes to take the oil out. Just like Montana has had, you know, had excise tax on the coal that's taken out of this state. 
um, uh, to fund our future without coal, which is we're rapidly approaching. Uh, same with Venezuela, that uh, they're dependent, a lot of their economy is dependent upon their oil, um, their oil uh, income and and also, you know, trying to put, you know, Venezuela is, uh, is, is uh, still a poor country, as are most countries in Latin America. Um, and uh, they're trying to, you know, look after their own needs instead of having corporations take all the profits out of the country. Yeah. So, and I couldn't tell you who's, who's operating there now. I know that the... I'm, I'm looking it up. Oh, are you? Okay. <laughs> we may find out. Yeah. And so it's, uh, you know, this is uh, an ongoing thing. And, uh, you know, Trump had. It's their own. What's that? Sorry. Well, I'm just taking a quick look here. It, yeah. Uh, anyhow, it said that they've got their own oil company. Yeah. Sitco yeah. is the name of the. Okay. Venezuela proposes deals allowing private companies to operate something, something. So, yeah. Who knows? Right. They, they didn't they didn't totally take over. They uh, they allowed privately owned companies to continue to operate, but they couldn't act with impunity like they had before uh, Hugo Chavez was elected president back um, maybe even 15 years ago. So uh, this is, you know, this is the dirty little secret of uh, U.S. foreign policy, of course. It's not so little, but it's extremely dirty. And it's not a secret, uh, but we tend to ignore that, right? In um, uh, in thinking about our own situation here, that there are some places in the world that are actually worse off, and um, we've helped them make them worse off. And Venezuela is uh, probably one of the the lead candidates for that. And it looks like Venezuela is starting. to hear this article from Reuters. Is uh, what's the date? Well, January 14th, 2021, Venezuelan, Venezuelan um, officials have met in recent months with small oil field contractors to propose letting them operate fields open, owned by state-owned PDVSA. Mm -hmm. um, facing a collapse in crude output um, and U.S. sanctions aimed at ousting in trying to attract invest investments to the OPEC nation by offering even sweeter terms. So, I mean, it's, I mean, that must be their tactic is make them come around, do what they want. Yeah. I mean, that's what sanctions are supposed to do. And in this case, you know, the people in the government of Venezuela haven't done anything outrageously wrong except for, uh, be independent of the interests of the United States and of the big oil companies. So, yeah, okay. yeah so you probably want to get on to the next. Yeah, well, and it's this also is in Latin America, but this is good news. Um, and it's out of Brazil. So, according to Democracy Now! on March 11th, former Brazilian President Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva has been cleared to run for president again after a judge annulled all convictions against him. Um, and I might note that thanks to the excellent investigative journalism by Glenn Greenwald, who we have quoted on this show several times, uh, 
Greenwald uncovered outrageous corruption yeah. that set Lula up for arrest. I mean, it was, it's, it, you, you almost couldn't write how corrupt that was. And with Lula in jail, he was running against Bolsonaro. Uh, Bolsonaro, of course, won. Um, and three years ago, Lula had been considered a favorite in the lead up to the 2018 presidential election until he was put in jail for 18 months and forced out of the race. The jailing of Lula helped pave the way for the election of the far-right former military officer, Jair Bolsonaro. Lula is a former union leader who served as president of Brazil from 2003 to 2010. During that time, he helped lift tens of millions of Brazilians out of poverty. Yeah, and that's, that's it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So, and so will he run in the next election? I don't know when that's supposed to be. I think did yeah. Bolsonaro want to have like become like like Putin or something and never have to run again or something? Yeah. Well, yeah. He's he's part Trump, part Putin, right? Um, and uh, uh, I mean, because I think Trump also thinks he he won every election by a landslide, right? Um, but. Uh, um, it's not certain that he's going to run. I think the elections are in um, uh, 2022. I think it's a four-year oh. term. Okay. So um, that would be next year. Um, I'm not positive. I, sh I should have looked that up. But, um, but that. he did sound as if he was running because uh, he blasted the inept handling of the pandemic by the Bolsonaro government, which, as we have covered on this show, rivaled the incompetence of the United States. If he does run, he will be a very formidable opponent, as President Barack Obama once called him the most popular politician on earth. Wow. Yep. And that might be, uh, you know, S Sanders is right up there, too, probably, I would, I would guess. Our, our next story. Part two? Yes. Oh, okay. Sorry. So we recently reported on a release study by the Lowy Institute in Australia on how nations ranked in responding to COVID-19. Out of the 98 countries the Lowy Institute studied, the U.S. ended up ranked 94th best overall. Oh, so what has nursing, nursing homes um, to do with why the U.S. has done such a poor job from the pr perspective of the pandemic? Yeah. Um... Well, as it, as it turns out, maybe quite a bit, um, a story written by Alexander Coburn in the September 2020 edition of Harper's Magazine, and I'm going to read quite a bit from that. So um, hang tight here. And this is from this Alexander Coburn article. The arrival of Ronald Reagan's business-sponsored administration in 1981 saw a determined effort to dismantle nursing home regulations deemed irksome by the industry, such as requirements that patients be adequately fed, <laughs> irksome. Retreating in the face of public outcry, his administration adopted the alternative and equally effective course of failing to enforce said regulations. By the following year, according to a report by Kathleen Hughes of Ralph Nader's Center for Study of Responsive Law, the inspection budget for the agency that oversaw Medicare and Medicaid was so diminished that nursing home inspections had essentially ceased. The terms of trade established 
in the years after 1965, in which cutting costs was favored over improving service, appeared to be more or less unchanged. The industry has no pricing power, quote unquote. Omatayo Okusanya, a managing director for equity research at Mizuho Securities, explained. He said, it lives on whatever the government opts to pay, end quote. The art of successful management of nursing homes is thus, one, control costs, and two, control the patient mix, meaning ensure that a facility optimizes its ratio of Medicare to Medicaid patients. Said Okusanya, Medicare pays more, owing to another miscalculation by modelers overestimating the severity of the pandemic and the consequent shortage of hospital beds. New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and other states ordered hospitals to offload medically stable patients to nursing homes, including people who had been diagnosed with and treated for COVID-19. The nursing homes were required to accept them. And in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo, and you know his name from the news, forbade homes from testing new arrivals. The results were, of course, disastrous, as carriers broadcast the virus throughout overcrowded facilities. Once this was publicized, Cuomo and other state executives came in for well-deserved abuse, not nearly enough in my opinion. But for nursing homeowners, there was a silver lining. In October 2019, Medicare instituted a change to its payment systems that made it more profitable for nursing homes to accept Medicare patients from hospitals. According to one analysis, data from April clearly shows COVID positive patients generating higher rates than non-COVID patients, $699 per day to be precise, an increase of 9% over February's numbers. Patients were evicted to make room, the New York Times reported, many of whom wound up in homeless shelters, rundown motels, and other unsafe facilities, though this has long been a common practice in the industry. Some homes turned into coronavirus-only facilities, including Country Villa South, an 87-bed Los Angeles home. Well before the pandemic's arrival, its owner, Rockport Healthcare Services, was sued for allegedly dumping patients without notice to make way for more lucrative replacements, all part of getting the mix right. As the rising number of nursing home deaths began generating ugly headlines, industry officials were quick to adopt the roles of both victim and supplicant. Announced Mark Parkinson, the former nursing home entrepreneur and governor of Kansas, who commands the industry's chief lobbying operation, the American Healthcare Association, quote, the truth is that nursing homes have not failed America. The public health system has failed nursing homes, (laughs) end quote. Long-term, oh, he continues, long-term care facilities are doing everything possible to stop the spread of this virus, but we need help, end quote. That help was soon on its way in the form of a of the $2 trillion CARES Act. It's actually more than that. Um, Here here comes the COVID-19 cash, Okusana wrote in a note to his clients. 
Nursing homes initially stood to receive $1.5 billion, and further bailout assistance boosted that sum to $5 billion by the end of May. Seema Verma, the, the CMS administrator, uh, uh, Centers for um, Medicare and Medicare Services Administration confirmed at a White House press conference there are no strings attached. So the healthcare providers that are receiving these dollars can essentially spend that in any way they see fit, end quote. This was in addition to the help provided to the industry in the form of dismantled oversight and regulations. Toby Edelman, an attorney with the Center for Medicare Adv Advocacy, described how the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, had, quote, waived the rule stating that homes cannot discharge a patient without notice, end quote, thereby making it easier for nursing homes to dump low-paying Medicaid residents in favor of Medicare patients requiring treatment from COVID-19 at the recently boosted rates. Indignantly, Edelman dismissed the recent CMS data, indicating that only 3% of nursing homes have infection problems, such as the urinary tract infections that, uh, or uh, uh, bed sores that in, uh, in, impact many, many residents in nursing homes. And even as figures from a government accountability office report had revealed, dangerous rates of infection at four out of every five homes between 2013 and 2017. Yeah. Edelman, yeah. Edelman asks, are we supposed to believe that infections have suddenly almost disappeared? End quote. Normally, nursing homes are monitored by ombudsmen, licensing agencies, and most importantly, patients' relatives. Under lockdown, all of that went away. Uh, Edelman concluded, there's no oversight, no infection surveys, no ombudsman, no families visiting. I'm really frightened about what's going on, end quote. Free from outside scrutiny, the nursing home industry has been working hard to ward off any future penalties for its treatment of patients during the crisis. Can I say a note about the importance of the families too? Sure. You know, yeah, I mean, just as an RN case manager who had um, clients, well, both at times in nursing homes, but more often in assisted livings, just the role of outsiders, meaning families, basically, but case managers could make a difference too. But that is what protects people mm -hmm. in nursing homes. And just the just realize that without them in there, just only looking through the window or not being able to reach them on the phone for sure, you know, just all that's been going on. It just, it's just a terrible, terrible thought. It is. And in Montana, um, the, the regulations, I mean, the, Montana has uh, the absolute bare minimum federal regulations for nursing home. As we've heard, those aren't, you know, inspected all that well. And um, it really is the ombudsman and the families that uh, uh, are sort of the, you know, really the main enforcers of this. And um, having been a representative of workers that work in nursing homes um, and have negotiated with uh, work nursing home owners, the Goodman Group in Missoula uh, being one of them, um, but not the only. Um, I, I, 
I, I continue to be um, shocked at how much, you know, the companies cut corners to make their profits. They, I think they pretty much take their profits right off the top from their Medicaid payments and then, um, you know, allow their facilities to be short staffed uh, and, sta- and put all the burden on the staff shoulders. And most of whom are absolutely conscientious and working as hard as they can but there's not enough. There's not enough staff. And so you get into these, you know, terrible situations with the nursing homes. It's really, um, it really is a big money-making machine. We're going to get into that here, you know, in a second. Um, But you're, but you're right. It's the, the families are, are, I would always recommend, um, you know, families to visit frequently if they know, if they have people in nursing homes, they, they got they they're really the front line of defense for their you and know the, for whoever's in there and i i think the people who work there appreciate it because they yes you're not in a position to chance losing their job and how often i mean they're they're vulnerable too they're right they're yep you know, yeah they're completely really stepping out saying what needs to be said and yep. sometimes they'll give you information as long as you know hopefully it doesn't get back that it was them yeah, and, and, and most of the workers in nursing homes are not making a living wage. No. I mean, here's, here's another, you know, the, the CNAs and the people in the kitchen and the people that do the laundry and are cleaning the rooms, um, they're not making a living wage. And yet all this responsibility is on their shoulders. And the companies, you know, the Goodman Group was, uh, I could cite many examples where instead of taking, you know, responsibility themselves, for short staffing or for lack of equipment or lack of supplies. Oh my God. I just have a thousand and one stories to talk about any of those. Uh, And not only just to pick on the Goodman group in Missoula, Missoula and Hamilton and Billings in Montana. uh, But also, uh, you know, there's other nursing homes that I've worked in too, as a union representative, it was the same kind of thing. You know, it, 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 uh, these companies are in it to make a buck. Um, and this, this should not be a for-profit enterprise. I, I, I mean, I'm, I've always been against that in terms of healthcare, uh, nursing homes should not be for-profit endpoint period. Mm-hmm. Um, well, back to this article by Alexander Coburn in the September, 2020 issue of Harper's. As the rising number of nursing home deaths began generating ugly headlines, industry officials were quick to adopt the role of both victim and supplicant, right? We heard that part. And um, they claim, and this is something I've heard frequently too. Yeah, it's, boy, we wish the rates for Medicaid were higher. We could afford more, uh, blah, blah, blah. But really, um, they take their profit off first and they make sure they have their profit and then residents and the workers have to deal with the rest. Um, so um, there was a, uh, you know, there's more money coming in, obviously, with uh, because of COVID. And um, the, uh, in a number of states, uh, this effort, oh, well, I'll, let me just repeat this last line. Um, <clears throat> Edelman, who's the um, Uh, Toby Edelman, attorney with the Centers for Medicare Advocacy, 
said that uh, there is no oversight. There's no infection surveys, no ombudsman, no families visiting. I'm really frightened about what's going on, end quote. Free from outside scrutiny, the nursing home industry has been working hard to ward off any future penalties for its treatment of patients during the crisis. This effort has been already handsomely rewarded in a number of states, most notably Governor Andrew Cuomo's New York. <clears throat> Deep in Cuomo's 2021 budget is a paragraph providing that for the length of the COVID crisis, quote, any healthcare facility or healthcare professional shall have immunity from any liability, civil or criminal, for any harm or damages alleged to have been sustained as a result of an act or omission in the course of arranging for or providing healthcare services, end quote. <clears throat> this neatly lets corporate owners and executives off the hook for any and all mistreatment of their patients. <clears throat> and as reported by David Sirota in Jacobin, Cuomo and the New York State Democratic Committee received no less than $2.3 million from the hospital and nursing home industries in his frantic effort to ward off an electoral challenge from Cynthia Nixon in 2018. Their faith was apparently not misplaced. These immunity provisions, or get-out-of-jail-free cards, as Gelbman describes them to me, soon spread far beyond New York. As of early July of last year, 21 states had adopted immunity laws, each identical to Cuomo's degree. Governor Gianforte of Montana has pushed for this very same ex exception, exemption, the Cuomo exemption. Uncoincidentally, the governors in those states had been in grateful receipt of a total of $44 million in campaign contributions from the nursing home and hospital business since 2017. Meanwhile, in Washington, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was pressing for corporate immunity from coronavirus-related federal lawsuits. Aghast at the prospect of the nursing home industry escaping accountability, advocates for the elderly rose in protest. A coalition of 250 advocacy organizations wrote Senate leaders the following. The magnitude of the crisis in nursing homes is directly related to years of cost-cutting and understaffing in an effort to maximize profits for nursing home owners and operators. To allow facilities to face no repercussions for these actions while asking nursing home residents to pay with their lives is a perverse outcome that cannot be tolerated, end quote. Nevertheless, as of late June, McConnell remained unmoved promising a hard line and strong legal protections for corporations against COVID-19 lawsuits. The wreckage wrought by the pandemic among the elderly in the United States has been by no means uh, been unique. At least half the deaths attributed to COVID-19 across Europe have occurred in nursing homes. In some countries, the toll has been far higher, as much as 75% in the United Kingdom and 64% in Norway. A Dutch nursing home worker posted a video of himself walking past empty room after empty room, exclaiming, quote, all the people here died of corona. This whole corridor is dead, dead, end quote. The same pattern has persisted in Sweden where the deceased have been almost all elderly. 
The high death rate in Sweden has been eagerly cited as evidence that the country's failure to lock down brought inevitably lethal consequences. But Swedes in general escaped relatively lightly, while at least half of those who died were in nursing homes. Another 26% were elderly Swedes being attended to at home by overextended care workers shuttling between clients without proper protective equipment, inexorably spreading infection. All of this, though financed by government and local authorities, was managed by for-profit companies. There's the, the common element there, right? This was true across much of the continent, including in Britain, where nursing homes were privatized by Ma Margaret Thatcher in 1990, another uh, market fundamentalist neoliberal move, and where many have since fallen into the hands of private equity. This pattern suggests that the heavy death toll among the elderly might be traced to one main source, the neoliberal privatization craze that has swept the Western world over the past 40 years. However, in addition, an arid statistical table published last year by the World Health Organization suggests another fundamental truth. It tabulates the number of nursing home beds per 100,000 people in each European country. Sweden scores very high, 1,276 per 100,000. Britain is also high at 847. The same computation puts the United States at 515. Greece, on the other hand, whose citizens tend not to put their elderly in relatives in homes and still regard their care as a family responsibility, scores a mere 15. The disparities in casualty rates are equally striking. In terms of deaths per 100,000, Sweden's rate is 53, the United Kingdom comes in at 66, and the United States has 39. Greece, meanwhile, despite having the largest proportion of elderly people in Europe, has so far escaped with a mere two deaths per 100,000. One might almost conclude that the death toll that has so traumatized and destabilized much of Western society in 2020 was not wrought principally by the coronavirus, but by nursing homes. Ideally, we might emulate Greek family relationships and arrangements or move to Greece to grow old and abandon the institutional care approach in favor of a model where the bottom line is not the driving priority. Cedars Healthcare Center is a 141 bed home in Charlottesville, Virginia. It shares many characteristics with the hardest hit facilities a population averaging about 80 years old, many of whom are African-American and almost all of whom are on Medicaid. Yet as of mid-June, it had not a single COVID-19 infection. Be interesting to see if that's kept true to this day. When I asked how this could be, Chief Nurse Amy Ryan took me through the relatively straightforward measures the facility adopted in early March. Following news of the initial uh, nursing home outbreak in Kirkland, Cedars discouraged staff from working shifts at other homes, correctly anticipating that such movement would spread the infection. It stockpiled sufficient supplies of protective equipment, such as masks. Crucially, it also adjusted the air conditioning system to prevent circulation throughout the buildings. I asked whether any of these measures had required much labor or investment. She replied, not really. It was all pretty straightforward, just getting ready in good time. End quote.
So, so one of the things that um, struck me in that article that you shared with me too, yeah, uh, was the whole role of private equity, and um, that meaning the big money at the top, where right. all our money has been going, and now they've got all this money to play around with, and how they decide to do it, um, you know, where they can um, get it, they can buy the place, and then they recruit the patients, cut the staff and um, get their money um, and, and it's the two they'll buy similar to the hospital groups that they'll buy a, a group and then um, drive it into debt and then sell it and then make money in that whole process. They, they actually take the institution and, and then pull the money out of it. And in this case, of course, they're killing people. And what was interesting is that one of the groups that they talked about, one of the worst was the uh, Carlisle group. Which is yes. the one that used to own the Montana Power, the Montana Water Company. Right. Missoula, Missoula Water Company. Yep. Yep. What did I say? You well, said Montana. I, yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mountain Water. Okay. Yeah. Mountain Water. Right. Right. Um, uh, and, and that's that's uh, that's to me one of the most galling things, because that money, again, is going up to the top with the first CARES Act. And and they're using that money to, again, cherry pick around the country who they're going to own and how they're going to put them into debt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's just it's it's a, a game plan. It's a money maker. Oh, they were talking about how much they drove up their profits. It was amazing. It was like to 26 um, percent for after oh wait, the violations went up um, 26 percent after Carlisle bought this one place, Manor Care. Mm -hmm. um, the debt rose to seven seven billion dollars. Um, the bank, the their CEO left with one hundred seventeen million dollars. Um, and this hmm. one place that was buying them, their their profits went up uh, 38 percent, and then seventy percent on this. Wow. You know what they what they bought. And, you know, it's all in that article. Um, so it's just it just it just isn't. It's you know, and that's not how you can really run a, uh, a healthcare system. No, a healthcare system. Absolutely not. And, you know, just to, just to sort of verify some of that, those statistics in the article, one of the things that um, in dealing with uh, Cascadia, which owns the Libby Care Center or the Goodman Group that owns uh, three of the four nursing homes in Missoula, earns a runs and owns a nursing home in Billings and one in Hamilton um, that because they receive Medicaid money principally, right. But typically about two thirds of their income is Medicaid, right. And they'll have some Medicare, um, but that's only for a hundred days, right. That's, it's a more limited and, uh, and usually it's like rehabilitation. I think of uh, people come in for a temporary time. Your, your, your whole life savings. Well, it, right. That's the, that's the Medicaid part, right? So, so yeah, a lot of people don't understand that is that um, uh, what, uh, if you don't have private insurance, which actually, um, uh, there, you know, I experienced a nursing home refusing to eject a inadvertently violent person, right? He was suffering, you know, from dementia, but he was very strong and he, he injured several workers. Right. Um, and, uh, and the, the, you know, the company wasn't going to 
um, take them to a more secure place where there, where there were workers who could deal with his strength and with his, his violent outbursts. And um, uh, because he was a private pay, because it pays more money. And we had to shame him into, into moving that person before he hurt somebody else inadvertently, right? He wasn't doing this on purpose, but, um, and so, uh, you know, so, you know, cherry picking residents, I mean, I've seen this nursing homes do this, but their main, the, the, the main economics of, of this is that, you know, two thirds of the money comes from Medicaid. And what happens is that if, you know, a family has, you know, mother or father or someone elderly in their family, they have to, they, they can keep a few assets, not a whole lot, but essentially the nursing home takes all their assets and uses and sells that and uses that to pay forward the care. And then at that point, when they become absolutely destitute, um, that person has no more assets, then Medicaid kicks in. And Medicaid will pay, actually in Montana, this was a couple of years ago, but if you run a nonprofit nursing home, you, uh, the, the rates paid by Medicaid were sufficient to pay pretty close to a living wage for all of your workers. Um, you had enough supplies and, and equipment for, uh, you know, to take care of the residents and, um, you know, but there was no money left over, right? There was no profit. So the for-profit, uh, so if you're not for profit, you could run a pretty good nursing home, right? Um, with, with decent care. If you're for profit, mm-hmm. your profit becomes the, you know, there, there's no room for it. So um, what I think they do is they take, I, we, we sort of ask, kind of guesstimated, they have to make a report every year to Medicaid, Medicare services, the CMS Center for Medicaid, Medicaid services. And um, they have to write this report that's about an inch and a half thick <laughs> uh, of paper uh, about, you know, how, the, you know, what income do they have? Uh, how, you know, what money did they spend on what things? And um, we figured, we found, you know, there's places where they hide money and, uh, and there's various different tricks they can use. But generally we figured they, you know, the nursing homes, this was before the pandemic, were uh, taking about 12 to 15% right off the top. Yeah. So, they, so they take 10 to 15% of their Medicaid payments and their Medicare payments, and they ship it off to the, to the owners. And then the rest of the money is what is left to pay workers and to take care of residents. And it's inadequate. It's, it's totally inadequate. So another thing what they do then is they don't hire enough staff. And I was reading in the article, I've been hearing these arguments for years from nursing home owners that, uh, yeah, you know, we, we don't have a staff shortage. It's just that people are calling off <laughs> and it's like, no, that's not how that works. Right. Call, people calling off. That's a normal thing. You have to build into your staffing model enough staff to uh, cover that sort of thing. I mean, people need to take vacations or people get sick and they shouldn't come to work. Right. <laughs> and uh, uh, et cetera. And so, 
Um, so they would use that as an excuse or they would use the excuse, well, Medicaid doesn't pay enough, right? Well, it doesn't pay enough, I mean, basically because they're skimming money off the top to make their profits. And it's a very, very perverse system uh, that is, is thoroughly evil in my mind. Um, and it, it, you know, that if you recall, um, the worst and most deadliest outbreak of COVID in Montana was at the village nursing home in Missoula. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, you know, we had talked about this before. The, the first place where it broke out was in the Shelby nursing home. Mm -hmm. and, and there was quite a few deaths in, in that. Yeah. Um, and so did you find something about what in Montana, what percentage of deaths in Montana were in nursing homes? Um, in the U.S., 1% of America's population lives in long-term facilities, but um, it accounted for 34% of U.S. deaths. Wow. Um, and then... That's something from the states. But yeah, sorry. Well, 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 while you're looking at that, I mean, um, so, and this is not just nursing homes, it's also assisted living. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in the US, I mean, the 34%, I think you said, of all the deaths are the, you know, someone who's in a nursing home or an assisted living home. That's, um, you know, looking, looking at nursing. Yeah. Looking at nursing homes is, uh, I think <laughs> this, this is, that statistic really is shocking. And given how the for-profit nursing home, especially industry operates, which was shocking to begin with, I, I guess I'm, I can't, I, I, I can't be too surprised. Um, and in, in Montana, the, the total number of deaths is 1,392. That's, that's how many deaths we've suffered here in Montana. Um, and if, you know, about a third of those are in nursing homes, you know, that's 470 or something, something like that um, is, uh, you know, moving forward, if we were to I mean, talk about transformational changes. I mean, the, the, whole, the whole elder care industry needs to be changed radically. I mean, it has to be made nonprofit, number one, um, in my opinion, uh, so that the profit motive doesn't enter into the care. You know, these stories that we read in this article about, you know, kicking patients out because they're just ordinary Medicaid patients, but the COVID Medicaid patients brought in more money um, that, that's, that's evil. And that there, there should not be a system that allows that to happen. Um, and, uh, and plus, you know, looking at Greece, right. Um, we should, you know, we should be build, rebuilding an economy. If we're, if we're going to be rebuilding right now, build back better, as Biden says, um, we should be looking at an economy that is, pays people sufficiently enough so that we aren't forced to send our parents or our grandparents uh, to a nursing home that, that, you know, there could be a way that we could take care of them as long as possible. And then when there's really, you know, a, 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 an absolute essential need to do that, that that's there, not in a nonprofit way, but um, 
I mean, these are some pretty major lessons to come out of this pandemic. Yeah, yeah. You know, for me too, I mean, I, I don't know how soon we're going to become Greece, um, but the, the, the idea of planning ahead that, you know, if you take protective measures, you can make a big difference. And that that one uh, cedar, I can't remember the name, but um, yeah, thinking about that, just that, that, that measures work. I mean, if you're asking your workers to not be involved with other places that aren't going to be taking care of their people, then you have to be paying them enough to keep them working there and to make it viable for them to have one job instead of two. And, right. Um, so, so that made a difference. And, and, and whatever in your air conditioning, that doesn't sound like it was that big a deal, but the PPEs are, and then the PPEs are in short supply if you don't plan ahead, which of course is what was going on nationally is that we have not planned ahead and we let our public health system go to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. Yeah. In previous shows, we've covered that we, the, our plans were second to none, but we didn't follow the plans <laughs> because partly because both during the, um, uh, especially during the Obama administration and the Trump administration, public health costs were slashed. Okay. Because it was like, well, why, why are we spending money on this? We don't need it. Right. And we weren't, we weren't following our own plan. Um, I, I would also say too, that, uh, building ventilation, um, I do know that, uh, building ventilation is an important deal. Sometimes these buildings, uh, I've seen it. I know one of the you know, one of the facilities that I would go to up in Libby is there's only one, so Libby care center that there, there had been, um, during some really intense times of heat, there had been, terrible ventilation problems, right? And that, uh, and I don't know, you know, they, the company tried to fix, it was a different, owned by a different company, but they tried to cheap, fix it on the cheap, right? They, they didn't want to put the money into really doing a, a thorough air exchange uh, system that would actually accommodate this sort of thing, you know, a viral outbreak. Uh, as far as I know, and, um, and it, you know, just to get them to fix it so that people weren't sweating in 90 degree temperatures in their rooms where they couldn't open their windows, um, that seemed to take an act of Congress almost to get that done. So uh, again, the profit motive is working against the best interests of the residents in these facilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, here, I, I finally got my computer to cooperate. Okay. <laughs> so percent of COVID-related deaths occurring in long-term care facilities, and then you can look at this map. Um, so Montana was um, in long-term care facilities is 35%. Right. That's about a third. So that's about the national average. Um, and that's, yeah, that's outrageous. Well, yeah, 34%. You're right. You're right. For 1% of the population, it doesn't say here what percent of the population it is in Montana, but yeah. Right. It may be, it may be a little more than that. I know there's about 100, well, there's actually more than that. There's um, assisted living kind of falls under a different kind of category with the state of Montana, but um, I think there's about 97, 98 nursing homes in Montana. 
And assisted living is probably more than that, actually. It mentioned 204 something brothers here. I don't know. That could be, yeah, I would guess that would be assisted living. Maybe it's all together, but uh, um, that's, that's quite a bit, actually. It's quite a number. Um, well, Sue, any, any last words before we? Uh, no. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thank you for being here. We, we hope uh, you learned something out of this show, and um, there's plenty of work for us to do in our, in our society to, uh, you know, not only prevent the next pandemic, but to deal with the next pandemic in a much better way than we have. And uh, so thank you for listening. We hope you join us next week next saturday at noon to two mountain time um you have been listening to voice of the people radio by and for the 99 percent on kfgm low powered fm station 105.5 on your dial in the missoula valley uh and 105.5 kfgm.org live streaming and uh podcasts you can listen to us on, uh, you can search for us on Spotify or Apple or any of your podcast apps under Voice of People Radio by and for the 99%. Again, thanks, Sue, and uh, we'll see you next week. Democracy is coming. coming.